you have your Bible with you this morning, why don't you uh, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 9. We're not going to spend a lot of time there, but uh, I want you to see a passage. It's not going to be up on the screen. And in in Romans chapter 9, around verse 14, Paul begins to uh, kind of wage an argument for people who are misunderstanding the activity of God. And so he uses Moses and he uses Pharaoh as a contrasting point. And in Romans chapter 9, verse 14, he begins to talk about the activity of God and the power of God because many people misunderstand God's activity. So look with me if you have your Bibles open. If not, I'll just read it along for you. Romans 9, 14, it says this, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Verse 17, for the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Jesus engaged in a uh, debate. I don't know if I should call it a debate because it it would sound like there's a chance of somebody winning a debate with Jesus, and that's not possible. But there's a bunch of religionists who confront Jesus. And um, I I don't know what else to call them. Um, They go to church. They're synagogue people. And they read their Bible. They think they really know, know God. They think they know God really well because they're Pharisees and scribes. And they begin questioning the power and the activity of God. And you see it in Matthew, and you especially see it in Mark chapter 12. And Jesus begins to refer to uh, things they don't understand, and they still don't get it. And he begins to use an illustration of Jonah. And and I'm going to teach you about Jonah this morning. But what I want you to see is Jesus' response to these individuals on the screen from Mark chapter 12, verse 24. Jesus said, you're way off base, and here's why. One, you don't know your Bibles. Two, you don't know how God works. Now, you may think, well, that doesn't read like my interpretation of my Bible. It's actually from the message. I don't use that paraphrase version too much, but it really made my point. As a matter of fact, by the time you get to verse 27, he actually says you're way, 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 way off base. Here's the way it says it in the New Living Translation. Mark 12, the same verse. Jesus replied, your mistake is you don't know the power of God. And he's talking to church people. He's talking to people who think they understand God's activities. And the Pharisees are a little ticked. Because if you tell a person who knows the Bible that they don't know the Bible, and if you tell a person who says they know God that they don't know God, you can imagine that the hackles on the back of their neck begin to stand up. And that's the case in this situation. So Jesus goes to a giant fish story. And he talks about the activity and the power of God and how we misinterpret how God wants to be active in our life. So, here's where you're going to get to move. Move from the New Testament to the Old Testament to the book of Jonah. If you have your Bibles, you'll also see it up on the screen. And understand as we move over to this book, it's very near the end of the Old Testament. This is a book of prophecy. It's one of the most ridiculed books on planet Earth, even to this day. It it continues to take shots because most liberals would look at it and say, a fish swallows a man whole and the man lives. It's absolutely impossible. Can't happen. And since most liberal scholars deny the possibility of anything supernatural, they dismiss the book of Jonah as anything more than a fairy tale. Well, we believe the account of Jonah is true because God says it's true. And that's enough. 
So God had it included in the canon of Scripture. And God, Jesus, refers to it over and over again, further validating it. But let's move forward into Jonah because Jonah is different than all the other prophetic books because it's not really a book of prophecy. It's a book about Jonah's life and it's really, really short. It says four chapters, but it really in the Hebrew language it's just one continuous story and they're very, very short. It starts out just like all other prophetic books. Verse 1 says this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's the way every other prophetic book starts, the same exact way. But here's the difference. All the other prophets, they had been assigned to Israel. They had been assigned to Judah to go out and proclaim the word of the Lord. Jonah is being told to go to the Gentiles, to a, a new region, a place where people were told who were Jewish not to go. Now, based on the writing style that you're going to see this morning, we believe specifically this took place during the Persian period because of the vocabulary that's used and the writing style. It's very unique to this period of time and the literary features. And specifically, while Nineveh was capital of Assyria. Now, that may not mean a lot to you, but it will in just a minute because this is a powerful, powerful region. So look with me at verse 2 because this is God's command. God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. We're told by God himself, it's a great city, and God's command is tell them to get on their knees before me. Now here's the difference. In the Old Testament, every, every single other time people are taught to by God's prophets, they're Jewish. God's saying, get out of your world Get out of what you know to be comfortable. Go to this region that you've never been to before because it's Gentile territory and witness to these people. Now, up to this point, Israel was commanded to pursue God and be a passive witness to the activity of God and allow people to be attracted to God by their lifestyle and by God's victory in their lives. But now Jonah's being told to go directly to them. Now, Nineveh, we understand, at this period of time in the Assyrian Empire is being ruled by a man by the name of Sennacherib. Sennacherib is a very powerful king. I want you to see his image on the screen. He's kind of a funky-looking dude. See his image? Nice hat, huh? How do we know that he looks like this? Because this guy really, really, really liked himself. And he left lots of pictures behind. Not the kind you would take with your camera, obviously. But he had artists carve stone reliefs of him. Not just one, not just two. He had 9,184 feet worth of stone carvings left behind of him and who he was. See, can you say ego with a capital E? He was powerful. Now, you're going to see why in just a minute, but this guy is so mighty, he thought everybody else is going to want to know who I am. So he had somebody carve two miles worth of stone carvings. This next one that you're going to see is, is one of the ones that were left behind. And now, here's the unique thing about this. The reason the book of Jonah has been so ridiculed over a long, very, very long period of time was not just because of the story of Jonah being swallowed by a great fish, but also because archaeologists could never validate that the city of Nineveh ever even existed, let alone that the Assyrian Empire was so powerful that it had a massive city like God referred to in the book of Jonah. When God calls it a great city, he says it's a powerful city. As you're going to see as we get into chapter 4, it's got hundreds of thousands of people in it. Now, this carving that you see is one of a carvings that came out of his palace. Here's what's remarkable. 
Not only did Sennacherib really, really like himself and leave lots of pictures behind of himself, he built a palace that was unrivaled in the modern world at that period of time. Babylon was a powerful empire, but nothing like what this guy did, even though archaeologists couldn't prove it until about 100 years ago. They began discovering the foundations, and what they found were carvings like this with writings in it that detailed the construction process like blueprints of what they built for this guy. So get this picture in your mind. He had stones quarried 31 miles away and brought to his palace site. He didn't want to hear any of the noise of the quarry, so they dragged it in on the backs of slaves. Large stones, the size of 70-ton stones, and they stacked them up 72 feet high just for the foundation wall. And then on top of the foundation wall for his palace, he built the walls of his palace another 66 feet in the air. So we've got 138 feet high just for the walls outside his palace. Now think of Beaumont Tower on the campus of MSU. It's 104 feet tall, by the way. This guy's got a tower 138 feet tall. Add another 30-some feet plus on top of Beaumont Tower, and you've got just the walls of this guy's palace. That's how much he likes himself. Now let me show you some of his quotes. He begins bragging about what he's done to other countries. This is one of his quotes right off one of his stones about Babylon. It says this, Its inhabitants, young and old, I did not spare, and with their corpses I filled the streets of the city. Now, when archaeologists discovered that writing, they had to rewrite the history books because then they realized, "Uh uh-oh, this guy not only really lived, he was really powerful. And then about 80 years ago, they discovered this next quote that you're about to see regarding Jerusalem. At the battle of Lachish, and Hezekiah of Judah, this is a king, king over Judah, and Hezekiah of Judah who had not submitted to my yoke, him I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city like a caged bird. Earthworks I threw up against him, and anyone coming out of his city gate, I made pay for his crime. Then the history books had to be rewritten again. It looks like Jonah really was a real story, and that there really was a real Nineveh, and that there really was a powerful king. Now, just a couple more details for you before we move forward. This guy had engineered a magnificent aqueduct system. I want you to see the artist's conception on the screen of what his palace with his aqueduct system probably looked like. They had channeled water from the rivers and the mountains down to the city and allowed people to be able to move freely by boat or by walking within the city. Now, let's see. Jonah knows everything that you know. Jonah understands who this guy is. He knows way more than what you know about what it means to live in this period of time. And let's see how he responds to God. Go with me to verse 3. Verse 3 of chapter 1, it says this, But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it. Notice what he did when he went to Joppa. He's going the opposite direction. As a matter of fact, I want you to see the map on the screen so you understand where he went. What he did is he decided to go to Spain. God says, I want you to go to Turkey. Nineveh is up in Turkey. He's down in Israel, which would have been just a couple-day journey. Jonah decides, no, not that, God. You can ask me to do a lot of things, but I'm not doing that. I'm not going to those people. I know who they are, and I'll know what you'll do with them, and so I'm not going there. So he's doing everything he can to take himself further and further from God because he doesn't like God's plan. So we know that God is not just sovereign over our lives. God is sovereign over all of creation. He's sovereign over everything in nature. 
He's sovereign over the wind and the sea, and he begins to cause the wind and the sea to heave. Look with me now at verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laid down, and fallen sound asleep." Jonah's lack of reaction is extraordinary. Can you imagine sleeping through a storm? I've been on some rough seas. I know what it is to be in the midst of a storm. I've never been on a boat that's about to break up. I can't imagine sleeping through what he's sleeping through. See, sin really hardens your heart. And you begin to not recognize the things and the activities of God. Jonah is a poster child for the insensitivity to what God's doing around him. He says he knows God, but he's not really aware of God. Now, the pagans on the boat, they're aware that something extraordinary is going on. And they begin to cry out because they understand their life is in danger. These are professional sailors. These are professional fishermen. And they're afraid. I don't know if any of you happen to watch Deadliest Catch on television, one of the reality shows, but you understand how rough and tough the sailors are on those boats. Can you imagine those guys being on their face crying on the deck of their ship? Save us! I can't picture it. That's how scared these guys are. And so they begin praying and crying out to their gods, and they have a conversation with Jonah. They want to know, why Jonah's on the boat and who his God is. And I want you to see his response. Skip down to verse 9. He said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, I hear him. I hear him saying that. But does he really fear God? He does not fear God. If he did, he would have obeyed God's commands. He does the exact opposite. So he says, hey, I go to church. I have a relationship with that God. He made me. He made heaven and earth, and I I fear him. Really? What are you doing here when he told you to go there? Because you're not acting like someone who really understands the power and the activity of God. It's really ironic to me that the one who worships the true God is taking advantage of his grace relationship with him, and he refuses to live a life witness to the activity of God in his life. Now, you know the story. God's not through with him. Fish comes along. Look with me at verse 17. Jump all the way down there. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, we're going to go really quickly through chapter 2, but understand chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer. And Jonah begins to pray and cry out to God not because the guys are going to throw him off the ship. If you read the story, you'll see that that's what happens. And he's not praying at the moment that they're lifting him over the edge of the boat. He's praying from the belly of the whale. Now, here's what's remarkable. When you read chapter 2, maybe later today you can come back to it, what you're reading is the, the dialogue of a drowning man. Look, look with me up on the screen just for a sample of that. Verse 3, the current engulfed me. This is from chapter 2. The current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. He's sinking to the bottom of the Meridian, the Mediterranean Sea. And the Mediterranean Sea weeds are wrapping around him. And if you read chapter 2 far enough, you see that he's about to pass out when the fish grabs him. 
and swallows him whole. And Jonah finally in that moment breaks and his stubborn heart in desperation begins to pray. Now, if it was Mark Kring, I'm going to be crying out on the deck of the boat. God, don't let these guys throw me over the ship. Okay, I give. I'll go to Nineveh. That's how hard his heart is against the things that God wants him to do. And he begins thanking God for his deliverance in that prayer before he's even delivered. Why? Because he's smart enough to know and he knows God well enough that if God had him swallowed and he's still alive and he's conscious in the belly of this fish, God must have a purpose for me. And God must want to do something with me. So he begins to ask God to deliver him. Have you ever stopped to imagine the smell in that stomach? Have you really ever stopped to think about how utterly black it was in there? See, Geppetto and Pinocchio, they're not showing up to light a fire. He's there completely alone. It's quiet. He hears the regurgitation sounds of the stomach. He's smelling the acrid, fragrant aroma of whale sewage or whatever it is that ate him. And he's living the life of discipline because he's being disciplined by God. You ever been disciplined by God and had God take it to you? God can get your attention when you rebel. And that's what he's doing with Jonah, especially when he has a much, much greater purpose for your life than what you understand, especially when you fail to understand the activity and the power of God in your life. Now, some people think when they read Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 that he's repenting. They think that he's on his knees begging for forgiveness. If you read it closely, you'll see there's no begging for forgiveness. He doesn't even mention sin. All he does is declare who God is. He talks about the greatness of God and God's ability to deliver. And he admits that God is great and that God will rescue. But there's no repentance going on. And so God answers this prayer. Look with me at verse 10. It says in verse 10, chapter 2, Then the Lord God commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now this is what I know about creation when it vomits. See, I don't think just Jonah came out with vomit. I think everything came out. So you picture this guy with whale goo all over him, sitting on the beach, and I'm going to tell you that it's God being gracious in that moment because there's only two ways to come out of that fish. And the second way is not such a great option. So being vomited out of the mouth, there's probably something that is not so great, but it's better than the alternative. And here's what I understand about the biology of fish. Chuck Swindoll did a little research 10 years ago. Uh, He's a pastor in Texas And he met with a biologist and he found that the acid within the stomach of a great fish like this turns all of its prey, everything within its stomach, to a bleached white within 24 hours of swallowing it. We're told that Jonah's been in there three days. Three days in the belly of the fish. And this guy with a great Mediterranean suntan who grew up a Jew of Jews has suddenly turned whiter than white. And he stinks. And his clothes are nasty. And now this fish has just vomited him up on the beach. And I'm thinking, probably just outside of Nineveh. Because he jumped on the boat to sail to Tarshish all the way to Spain. 
The great fish grabbed him and began swimming back. Did it take three days just to swim all the way back? I don't know, but I'm thinking God didn't have him deposited in Italy. I'm thinking he took him all the way back to Nineveh, to Turkey, and he finds himself right back where he was supposed to be. And look at God's amazing grace when you get to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day walk. And that's where many archaeologists had a big struggle. A three-day walk, a city like that couldn't possibly exist. Because if you get down to chapter 4, verse 11 you see that God said there's 125,000 souls in that city. That's how big it is. And most of the archaeologists said, wait, 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 wait. There are no cities of that size during that period of time. There weren't cities of 125,000. Well, guess what they just uncovered in the last 50 years? 50 years ago, they discovered that there was indeed a Nineveh with more than 125,000 people in it. And so God's being gracious, not just to Jonah in this moment. He's being gracious to the people of Nineveh. Have you had that in your life? Have you experienced the grace of God where He gives you a second chance? That's what you're seeing being played out here. God's saying, Jonah, tell them they have a chance. Their wickedness has come against me It's a great city. Tell them they can turn things around, Jonah. Jonah had a second chance. He had a chance to do things over again. Now, this time we see obedience. We see Jonah obeying. And he says, I want you to go do this. And Jonah gives attention to it. But I don't think he has Jonah's heart at this point. I'll show you why in just a minute. So notice this. God says, I'm even going to put the words in your mouth. Do you notice that? In verse 2, it says, proclaim the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. In other words, get out there and talk to the people and I'll even tell you what to say because my plan is really, really, really simple. You don't have to be a great theologian, Jonah. You don't have to give out Bibles in the Assyrian language. You don't have to invite them to a potluck at New Hope. Just get out there and tell them who I am. Now, in their case, the message is really simple. This is the message. He said, just tell them, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. I'm going to do it myself. That's all he had to tell them. So here's what God's saying. Stick to my plan. It's easy. Now, I doubt, and this is just Mark speculating, I doubt that Jonah tried very hard. I really don't think that he did. I I don't think that he gave it his full effort. And I'll show you why when we get to chapter 4. He went into the city. I think he said his piece. Well, I told them. It's on them now. Because we're told that in chapter 4, he goes outside the city to sit down and watch the fireworks show because he's really thinking God's going to destroy this place. He's going to bring judgment on them. It's going to be just like Sodom all over again. But, but look at the most amazing verse in the whole story of Jonah, which comes from verse 5. This is what it says in verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. See, to me, that's greater than the fish story. That's bigger than the whale swallowing him and putting him back on the land. This entire empire that you've just learned about, who is the envy of the world, everyone is looking to them because of their massive structures. 
and they believe in God. This is your God being amazing. Now, look at the next verse in chapter 3. And they called a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. So everyone from the king to the cows is crying out. And Nineveh believed, and this is a thorough repentance. Now look at the king's response. Go with me to chapter 3, verse 6. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, remember this is the guy who really liked himself. The king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. Murder, rape, slavery. He desolated empires. And God's given this guy a second chance. And he takes his robe off, which for a king in this period of time was essentially to say, I'm not important anymore. I'm not powerful. I am broken before God. He is humbling himself in the eyes of the Creator. You're talking about Revival 101. Can God bring back an entire city? You're looking at it. God, we saw last week, brought back the Praetorian Guard of Rome to himself and exposed them to the gospel through Paul being in chains. Now look at what God can do through a city which is an empire, which is massive. Is our God not an amazing God? What an awesome God we serve. Now, let's look at the contrast. Move forward with me into Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Not exactly how you want your pastor to respond, okay? This guy is supposed to be the shepherd of the flock. God's given him a responsibility, and he's furious when he sees the repentance. Why? Because he knows God's not going to destroy them now. He, he knows that God is going to be merciful and you're getting a glimpse of his true heart. Here's the evidence. The evidence is he did not really repent in the belly of the whale. The evidence is he wanted out of that situation, and he's willing to fear God when it was convenient to him. And once he got delivered, he's good with that. But he's not really repented. So earlier, he recognizes God. He recognizes God's power, but he fails to grasp the activity of God and God's purposes is that where you're at this morning? Are, are you just like Jonah? At that place where you recognize, God, i got a relationship with you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for saving me. And you even tell people, you fear God. You read your Bible, you understand God's word. But do you fail to allow the power of God to be displayed in your life so that other people understand you belong to Jesus and you'll do whatever he asks you to do? Unfortunately, many of us devise all forms of strategies and we jump on ships and we sail to Spain because anything but that, God, I do not want. Don't ask me to do that. I'm good with my relationship with you and I'm good with coming to church. Don't ask me to talk to my coworker. Don't ask me to talk to the other students at school. Anything but that, God. God's saying, I'll even put the words in your mouth. I'll make it easy for you. Now, watch Jonah's attitude in verse 2 and see if you can identify with this because he goes to prayer. Now, many times when we go to prayer, we do something very specific. Let me, let me show you in verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and he said, Please, Lord, 
Was not this what I said while I was in my own country? And to stop right there. We immediately, when we go to prayer, usually begin asking God for things. He's starting to build a case. <laughs> He's saying, God, I told you, and, and I follow this, while I was still in my own country, therefore, in order to forestall this, what's this? Revival? He doesn't want to see revival. And in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. This is his request. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life. Can you imagine the depth of the hardness of the human heart when things are not going the way we want them to go? Kill me now, God. Take my life. I don't want this on me. The hate is so deep. He doesn't want God to give them a second chance. Why is he hating like this? Well, what you don't know about the Assyrian Empire is that they're not only the United States of their day. They're not only the most powerful world force at this time. They're not only the economic power of their day, but they had defeated Israel in battle. And they had exacted tribute from Israel. And they had taken Israelites as slaves. And they were cruel to the people of Israel. So Assyria isn't just any old neighboring nation to the north. These are the active enemy of Israel. And that's who God called him to go witness to. And his hate is so strong and so personal. He wants his own way so much He's willing to deny the power and the purposes of God, even when God makes his purposes abundantly clear. So here's where God does heart surgery, and he asks a God question. Look with me at verse 4. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? No! He doesn't have good reason to be angry. He has no reason to be angry. So God brings the point home because Jonah is this walking contradiction and God's causing, causing him to come face to face with himself trying to say, what's your reason for being angry? Go with me to verse five. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. See, he's going out to watch the fireworks, but he's not getting the fireworks, so Jonah's going out to pout. Because God's not doing what he wants him to do. Maybe God will still destroy them. I'm going to go watch and see. Now, had the Assyrians committed atrocities? Yep. Had they devastated nations? Yeah. They deserved judgment. And Jonah wanted them to get their due. But God had appointed him to be the person to bring them back. Now, I'm thinking, knowing human nature as I do, if God had appointed him to be the one to go into the city and announce judgment and destruction, no repentance, he'd be signing up for that one, saying, yes, yeah, send me. I'll be happy to announce the fireworks show for that. He'd be selling popcorn at that event. I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I want to see this happen. What you're looking at here is a double standard on display. Israel had been forgiven many, 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 many times. Israel had offended God. Jonah himself has just been rescued by God in the midst of his disobedience. He's a complete walking contradiction. And so he's clinging to his pride of his identity. I'm a follower of God. 
I know the God of the Bible. I understand Him. But yet, I don't like the way He works. So he's got the superiority complex going on. So here's what he's doing, church. Ultimately, he does what you and I do because the same rings true in 2013. Ultimately, he has decided he alone knows what is best. And he himself should be in place of God. Even when God has made his direction evident and says, this is what I want you to do, I don't like your plan. I'm really not interested in that, God. So use me in some other way, but don't ask me to do that. that that's ultimately what he's doing. Why did God choose Israel? Fairly fundamental question. Did he choose them because they're the most powerful nation in the world? No. Did he choose them because of their military strength? No. Did he choose them because they were more spiritual than everyone else? (laughs) No. He chose them out of his grace and mercy to put himself on display to show to the world what he could do through people who were fully yielded to him. And these individuals were not fully yielded. And God's saying, I want to be Lord of your life, not just Savior. So Jonah fails. He failed because he's unwilling to help people that he sees around them to help them know who they are so they can have a relationship with God. And our life is a parallel to Jonah. God has called each one of us, and we rebel. Well, let's just admit it, we do. God calls us, and we rebel in the midst of it. We say, no, that's, that's too uncomfortable, God. Don't ask me to do that. I'm, I'm just not interested. And we search for a ship sailing in another direction, saying, I'm going to Tarshish. You guys make do on your own. And God will deal with us in that situation. And it will hurt And he will bring us back. And we get so low, we'll say, okay, God, I give. But even with a hard heart, God can still use us. So my question for you this morning as you leave is this. Have have you allowed God to put himself on display through you? Do you actively allow other people to be drawn to him through God's activity in your life? Or are you more like Jonah? Do you limit God by your own inactivity? Do you hold back? If you feel like Jonah this morning, welcome to the club. Because we've all been there, right? We know that we serve the God of second chances and third and fourth. Some of us would say the fifth and the sixth and the seventh. He allows us to have restarts. That's our God. That's what he does. That's called grace. It's called mercy. So Jonah knew about God. He knew God's activities. Even his power very knowledge of that drove him in the opposite direction, that we would so easily identify the activity of God and then in that same breath say so willingly, no, I really don't like your plan. See, what Jesus was saying is God wants to put his power on display. And he told those individuals, you misunderstand greatly the power of God and the purpose of God. It's to draw people to himself. So question again, have you allowed God to put himself on display for others to be drawn to him through you? Here's what it requires of you this morning. It requires you to be vulnerable. It requires you to be forgiving. In some cases, you'll have to talk to people you don't want to talk to. It requires you just to talk and have conversation. 
So here's just two simple things that you can do this week. If you find yourself identifying with Jonah this morning, and many of us do, you can pray this way. Start by saying to God, God, I've, I've limited you through my own inactivity, my failure to respond when you called me to do something. Now, if you think that's the hard part and asking God for forgiveness in that moment, the hard part is what I'm going to tell you next. Because at that same time, you really need to say this. Please use me to make you known. Here's why that's hard, because it's dangerous. Because if you're willing, he'll do it. He will take you up on it, I promise you. So make sure that you're really willing that God will use you to make him known. Let's pray new hope. Father, I pray for our church family as much as I pray for myself because every one of us is guilty of holding back and to some greater degrees than others. But Father, we want to be in the place where we're willing to be used of you when you ask us and bold enough. So God, it really does take boldness on our part. So I ask for courage for this church. I ask for humility, that we wouldn't come across authoritatively, but rather that we would come humbly before our friends, our coworkers, our family members, who are just like the people of Nineveh and do not know you. But God, you've proven to us this morning that when hearts are ready, you are able and more than capable of working. Father, that you would do that in our city, that you would call this metro area of Lansing to yourself, And you did all that through one person. God, I pray for our church family that we would have eyes to see your activity and that when you make it evident, we're willing to go in that direction. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. And I pray for your courage. God, encourage us. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen.